Hey, good morning again. Today is a big day for me. Now, this is going to sound really weird, but um, I have like two things I really even have any level of skill in, and one is church stuff, I guess, and the other is cooking. So I have put together this awesome menu for our volunteer appreciation day, and I'm so jacked up about it, I can hardly even preach. So um, we made strawberry rhubarb pies from scratch that when you cut into them, the, the line is sharp, you know, and if you've baked a lot, you know those leak, you know. We made, a, we made fruit tarts that, uh, one, I didn't have enough fruit tart pans, so we made it in a cookie sheet, and one of them, if you looked on our Facebook page, it has our logo in the, de- in the fruit. So awesome. So anyway, if you're a volunteer, even if you didn't sign up, we're so grateful to have you. I may be talking up too much, but I don't even care. Just come out. You will not regret that you did. It's going to be awesome. All right. I'm not here to talk about the food, though, although... I could probably talk for 30 minutes about it, but I'm going to talk about th- for 30 minutes roughly about something else. And we're going to talk about this morning about giving. Now, most people hate when you come to church and you hear talk about money. May- in fact, maybe some people hate talk about money in any setting, you know? They have this little joke that, uh, you know, most people don't like to talk about sex or money, right? And I know in my family of origin, they did a great job talking about money. But anyway... Um, <laughs> You like that, don't you? So, but my dad, he taught me all kinds of great things about money. Um, and in the church world, you don't talk about it a lot. But that's because I think we hate being talked to about money because most of the time when money is talked about, it's a pressure-filled, manipulative, guilt-ridden opportunity, you know, experience. And so this morning, I don't want to do any of those things. I want to talk to you about many, money this morning. Um, not to produce guilt, pressure, or manipulation. And, and it's true, by the way, that it's not just the church that, that does those things when it comes to money. Have you ever been to one of those timeshare pitches? I have. They told me I'd get a three-day vacation. I listened for four hours. I didn't get no vacation. You understand? It's not just the church that does this. What I want to talk to you about this morning about money is the potential that money has to do for good and evil in our lives. For money is a disproportionate thing that has the opportunity to do both good and bad in our lives. In this way, it's like sex. Yes? Disproportionately has the power to do bad and good. And you can get yourself disproportionately in trouble with money very quickly. Very easy to save, or very, very difficult to save $500 a month. Have you ever noticed that? Very, very easy to spend $5,000 on your credit card. You understand? And so money, while by itself is not good or bad, has the disproportionate power to enslave and control us. And so this morning, I want to help you not feel that weight of being entrapped and enslaved by money. This morning, I want to free you what from a topic that often can be filled with uh, worry and shame. And I want to talk to you about money in such a way that will help you get outside of what I call the crazy cycle when it comes to money. Actually, I didn't create this. uh, One of my favorite preachers, Andy Stanley, I watched one of his sermons on giving, and he had this cycle, and it helped me so much. And here it is. Most people, when they interact with money, they have this behavioral pattern. The first is they overspend. The second is they go into debt. The third is that they have no margin, no excess. And then the fourth is that they worry. And it's just this crazy cycle. It's like a roundabout. 
For some reason, my dad hates roundabouts. I'm not sure, but every time we go through one, he always says, I hate these roundabouts. I actually love roundabouts. But the nice thing about a roundabout is, if you don't know what you're doing, you can just keep going around that thing until you figure it out. When, um, when my wife and I went to Ireland for our 10th anniversary, we looked 22, but we're not. And so we, we've been married legally for a long time, 15 years this year. But 10 years, for our 10-year anniversary, we went to Ireland, and we had just landed, and we were in Dublin, and we had rented the car, so I was driving it on the other side of the road, and I remember I got into one of those roundabouts. I went around that thing like six, seven times. I'm like, now where's the GPS telling me to go? I finally figured it out. But anyway, sometimes it feels that way with money. We just keep going around in that circle, hoping we'll figure it out, and how do we get off the roundabout of crazy when it comes to our money? And here's the cool thing. There is a counterintuitive reality about how we get off the roundabout of crazy when it comes to our money. And here it is. We give. We break the power of greed. And it's not always greed that fuels our crazy habits. Sometimes it's desperation. So we break the power of greed and desperation when it comes to money through giving. Now, that seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? I already don't have enough. How am I going to get out of the crazy cycle by giving? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Because the crazy cycle of overspending, debt, you know, no margin, and worry, 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 stress, stress, stress is not a cycle that anybody wants to be on. It doesn't matter what your church background is, you know. And so this is not a sermon where I try to squeeze something out of you. It's a sermon, hopefully, where I long to give something to you. And what I long to give to you is advice, which that sounds great, doesn't it? Don't you ever love that on Christmas? I have a gift for you. Oh, yeah, what is that? Advice. Oh, thank you so much. But nonetheless, I hope to give you advice, not my advice, but to the best of my, you know, limited ability I hope to give you the advice of what God says in his word about money, and then I hope to talk to you about how I think it can make a difference in your life, and I'll start that process by talking to you about how it's made a difference in mine, okay? So let's go ahead with it. The roadmap is clear. I'm going to take you to two passages in scripture. We're going to go through them briefly, and I'm going to show you what they tell us about money. The first passage is a theoretical passage. The second is a pragmatic passage. Another, the first one tells us why, and the second one tells us kind of the the nuts and bolts of how we are to be generously giving. Then I want to talk to you about how you should decide where you should give your money, because I hope to convince you that no matter where you give it, you need to have giving as a part of your life. So I want to help you teach you and talk to you about where you should give your money. And the the spoiler is, it's not just give it all here. It's not that. And then lastly, I want to talk to you about why I am passionate and grateful for the things I am. All right? So that's where we're headed. But to start, we're going to move to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. Just two short verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. If you're using our Bible that we provide, it's the blue book in the seat in front of you, and it's on page 939. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. The book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, is actually what scholars believe one of three letters. You probably don't need to know this. We don't know where the third letter is. We have two of them, second, 
First and Second Corinthians. It was written to a church in the city of Corinth, so the name is not real clever. I, I like that about the naming of the books of the Bible. They're not clever. You know, have you ever noticed, like, people name something, something so cool that you have no idea what it is, you know? That's why I like when Coke with lime is named Coke with lime. Now, anyway, Second Corinthians is a book written to the Corinthians, and this particular section is written about how they are to be generous. The church at Corinth was actually a fairly affluent church compared, that means they have more money, to the churches surrounding them in Macedonia. Those are the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, all places that Paul traveled in his uh, third missionary journey. Now, the book here, 2 Corinthians, is going to teach us about something about the theory, the motivation, and the why behind we give. And here's what Paul says. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Isn't that beautiful? I want to talk to you about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. This little section has two things to teach us. The first is this, is that God's generosity should compel us to be generous to others. God's generosity should compel us to be generous to others. Now, listen to me very closely. There is a direct correlation between how you believe about God and how he loves you and the way that you treat other people. Let me explain what I mean. Most of the religious systems of this world go something like this. If you are really good and your good outweighs your bad, then God will accept you when you die. That is the major religious system of the world. There are people who believe that. There are a lot of people who believe in nothing, you know, annihilationism, that we just die, and then there's nothing. And then there are the people who believe what the gospel or the Bible says, which is not what religious systems teach. If your good outweighs your bad, then God will accept you. Think about how cruel that would be if that was true. There is no point system, is there? You know when you play Mario, like Super Mario, my video gaming knowledge is pretty low. I'm excellent at Temple Run, though. Now, but when you play Mario, you know when you do something good, like you get a mushroom, you break a block. Um, you know how you get like a little bit of points and it says like 500 and it goes up in the right-hand corner? Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen that happen when you walk a grandma, your grandma across the street? Have you ever seen, like, good job, you made cookies for your neighbor, 200 points? Uh-oh, <laughs> you talked bad to your son, minus 300. There is no, like, running tabulation in the corner of your mind, is there? If it is true that good people get in, and it's your good that outweighs your bad that gets you there, as most religious systems of the world believe, the Vikings, the ancient Egyptians, Islam, most religious systems teach this. How cruel is it that a God would have this system without even giving you clarity on how many good things you've done? You see? And then, 
we are further complicated by the reality that is it really a good thing if you're doing it to earn the points in the right-hand corner of your mind, yes? There's so much complexity with that. God's generosity to us, what all of Christianity is built upon, and when I say all, it's no exaggeration, what all Christianity is built on is what is called the good news of the gospel, and it is this, that God loves you no matter what, despite what you've done, and he loves you and he offers you grace, which means unearned favor. That's it. Good people do not get accepted by God. It is forgiven people who do, and God offers forgiveness to everybody, and not everybody accepts it. That's the truth. Now, imagine with me for a moment. You've got person A on this side and person B on this side. And person A on this side believes this. I am awesome because I do good things, and I haven't done this, and I have done this, and therefore God loves me a lot. This is person A. And you know what that person prays? They pray something like this. This may sound familiar to some of you. Dear God, thank you for not making me like those people. I am a good person. I do good things. And thank you for loving me because I am so awesome. Everything is awesome. Yeah. Person B believes I am forgiven And they pray something that goes like this. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And they believe that I am far worse than I ever thought and I am far more loved than I ever dared hope. Tell me, if you had to go out and have breakfast with someone, who do you want to have breakfast with? Person A or person B? If you could choose a pen pal, which nobody does, who do you choose? If you could go to a church that believes this or believes this, where do you want to go? Our whole world must be transformed. Our church, our individual lives, our community must be transformed by the reality that not that God loves us because we are lovable, but that God loves us despite, and he extends it freely. And then we must extend it freely to others. Did you notice how when I prayed, I prayed, God Forgive us for when we do not love people well and extend, extend. I think I prayed this. I've prayed it before if I haven't. Extend our love for others. Why is this? Because God's generosity in the gospel, a gospel of grace, should compel us to be generous to others. It should transform absolutely everything, shouldn't it? And if we really believe it, it will. That's actually James chapter 2, so that's homework for another time and another day. James chapter 2. But this passage teaches us something else. It does not teach us simply that when we experience God's generosity, that we simply just become generous to others. That will happen, that God's generosity, if we understand it, will compel us to be generous. But when we are generous, this passage goes further and teaches us that when we are generous to others, we experience joy. In other words, what the passage is saying is that when we give our money away, what we don't experience is the dismal abyss of a loss of resources. We experience joy. Remember I told you about those other churches in Macedonia that Paul was alluding to. He alludes to them in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8. And he compares 
those churches to the Corinthians' attitude. And he says this in chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. For I testify that they, that those other churches, gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability. Notice this, entirely on their own, no pressure, no manipulation, no coercion, entirely on the, their own. In fact, those churches urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul goes further and even says that people, when we give, we should give joyfully. Joyfully. So if we're not giving joyfully, but out of obligation, we need to start, we need to do like a soul searching, yes? We need to search our souls. Because when we've experienced the gospel, we want to give of ourselves, of our money, of our time. We want to give to others. If I have been loved in such an undeserving way, and I have completely been transformed by that love, then why would I not want to love others? in that way. You know what I've really been working on this year? This is no joke. I've really been working on this. It's hard for me. When I drive and somebody does something else crazy, I just think about grace, you know? What I want to do is cuss them out. That's the truth. Although I don't cuss as a general rule of life because it's vocationally disadvantageous to myself. Yes? (laughs) So I don't do that. That's what I kind of want to do. Um, I had one day, I was driving, I was stopped at a stop, light, stop sign, and I was just stopped there, and I guess I got close to the other guy's bumper, and he got out and said, if you get close to my bumper again, you're, we're going to have trouble. And I said, okay, I'm so sorry for getting close to your bumper. Grace, I wasn't close to that guy's bumper. That guy's a weirdo. <laughs> yes? You see? He probably ate something bad or maybe not having a good day, you know. So sorry, sir. I won't get close again. Yes? Grace. And you know the reality? I'm a weirdo too a lot of times. I've done a lot of things that I'm sure have not been awesome to be on the other side of. (laughs) Grace. When we see the way God's loved us, we want to love others in that way. And we don't experience the dark, dismal abyss of doing so. We experience joy. That's the truth. It's even a joy to talk about it. But I have another text I want to take you to. And if this text is kind of the theory, why, motivation behind it, the next text is more practical. Not practical in as specific terms as you might think, I will say, but practical nonetheless. The text is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and what's great about that, you just have to turn a couple pages the other way to page 934, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Here the text says this, Now, about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Okay, I want to talk to you about four things this text shows us. And they're the things that, and they're quick, they're things that we need to do when we do our giving. First, giving should be regular, not sporadic. Notice how the text says, verse 2, on the first day of every week. Giving should be regular. 
Which leads us into the second thing this text teaches, which they go hand in hand. If giving is regular, it also must be planned. Giving should be planned. Each one of you, verse 2, should set aside a sum of money. Have you ever noticed with money, and actually it's not just this way with money, it's with every single thing in life, that we drift naturally towards what is bad and we plan for what is good. We drift naturally towards what is bad and we plan intentionally for what is good. Have you noticed this in life? It's really easy for me to gain 20 pounds. I can do that in probably a month if I was really working at it, you know. Not proud of it and I try not to, but I think I could make it happen. But you notice it's really hard to lose 20 pounds, like super duper hard. It's really easy to spend lots of money, really hard to save money. We drift towards what is bad, and we plan intentionally for what is good. When it comes to our money, Dave Ramsey taught me this. He's a guy that talks about money. Dave Ramsey says, you are either controlled, you either tell your money what to do, or you're controlled and told by your money what to do by your lack of it. You see? We drift towards what is bad. We plan for what is good. Third, giving should be proportionate. It should be generous, but it should be proportionate. Notice how uh, the text says, in keeping with your income. Now, why does it say this? I want to tell you why I think it says this. Because the Bible has a different view on work than many of us naturally have if we're not careful. I don't want to presuppose what your view of work is. But we start out when we're really young, when we look at work, and you ask a four-year-old, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they say they want to be an NBA basketball player, right? But most of them don't have the DNA of LeBron James. And even then, his DNA wasn't good enough to get him over the Golden State Warriors, yes? I was really hoping. Nonetheless, our work is not just about our dreams as a child. Like, many of us wouldn't, can't be basketball players. But then notice, like, when we're four or five, we say those things. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be this. I want to be an NBA player. And a lot of it's unrealistic. Not all. A lot of it is. And then we grow up, and I think it's kind of partly, like, we start seeing, like, I'm even picking it up with my kids. I have 10, 8, and 4, about to be 5. And you even can start to see, they start putting things together, like, I want these video game systems. I want this electronic thing. And that costs how much money? And they're like, when I grow up, I'm going to have this much money. I'm going to have all the video game systems I want. Oh, okay, you know, but um, I think we drift when we get older and we start thinking about work as a way to earn money. The Bible does not talk about work as a way to earn money. It talks about work as a way to serve people, and when you serve people well, you earn appreciation from them, and they come in the form of dollars, you know, or if you're in Mexico, pesos. Yes, that's how it works. You earn money. But the goal of our work, we have to remind ourselves of this, is not simply to earn money. It is to serve other people well. That's why it is such a, it feels to you and to me like such a, how do you say, it feels like such a travesty, a violation of nature when we hear these people who earn money by swindling people. You know, they do these parrots pyramid schemes, and they've made a lot of money, but they've made it in such a way that it hurts other people, and we think, gee, that's 
that's a violation of nature. It shouldn't be this way. Because work is about serving other people well. And when you serve other people well, you have more people to serve. And when you have more people to serve, you do better financially. This is the nature of work. But if you noticed that every field of work has a different level of pay, right? And it doesn't make uh, any particular field better or more important than another field. It means that they're all different. And God has gifted each and every one of us with different skills, predispositions, desires that determine a lot of times the fields of work that we go into. Sometimes we're just driven by desperation and need, and I don't want to talk bad about that either because there's a reality there. But work should be first and foremost about serving people. Next time you get your paycheck, which probably just goes in the bank account. So next time you look at your bank statement, you see your paycheck, you start thinking to yourself, how have I served people to earn this? Now change the way you think about things, right? It says in keeping with your income because we don't all make the same amount of money, and that's fine, and that's good, but we should be proportionate in the way we give of our income to help everybody. That's what the text says. Our giving should be proportionate. Notice here that when he talks about being proportionate with your income, that notice he is not begging them to give, and notice that he says that there will be a level of accountability that they can go along with him, that they'll have this accountability in how they spend the money. Fourth and lastly, giving should be designated. It should have a specific aim in mind. In this instance, the gifts that were received were going to the church at Jerusalem that was undergoing a particularly difficult time. Your gift should be designated. The question then that naturally arises is, well, what should I give to? I don't know what you're thinking about all the things I'm saying, probably all kinds of crazy stuff. But whatever you're thinking, let's assume for sake of argument for a moment that I've convinced you that giving is a good thing, yeah? What should you give to? And I want to suggest that there's really two questions that should drive your thinking on what you should give your money away to so that you can get out of the crazy of cycle of, you know, overspending, debt, no margin, and worry. And the two questions are these. Think about your life and ask yourself, what are you most grateful for and what are you most passionate about? What are you most grateful for and what are you most passionate about? I've thought about this. I, I actually, I read a book that prompted my thinking on this. And I think it's pretty cool. I read it last year. It's called Confident Pluralism. And it's a book that uh, is talking about how in our world where we all think so many different things, how can we survive together? which I'm always captivated by this idea. And the church is such a diverse group of people. We have people thinking all kinds of things and all kinds of different backgrounds, and yet I think there's so much value into us gathering in one place, forming relationships with each other and moving out. But nevertheless, in this book that I read, Confident Pluralism, the author suggested that our government actually has created a system that allows us to give and support and for organizations to survive and prosper or wither on the dictates of how you and I feel about our, on what our passions and our thankfulness. And it's all about the non-exempt status. Think about it with me for a second. The government has set up a system that we can give and get tax-exempt, give tax-exempt money to certain things, and they're educational in nature. Some, some are religious by nature. Some are charitable. And yet, 
John Ianzu, in his book, Confident Pluralism, points out that under this approach that our government has set up, organizations and ideas thrive and wither not by governmental decree, but by the values and choices of private givers. Did you hear that? By the values and choices of private givers. And there are all kinds of educational, religious, and charitable organizations that would love your money. There's no question of this. But which of them are you most grateful for and passionate about? There are organizations that are 5013C. He points out a couple ones that I thought were funny in his book. There's one organization that exists. It's called Tall, what is it called? Tall Clubs International that promotes tall awareness. So if you're a tall man or woman, you can be a part of this organization and give your money for their organizational dues. That doesn't sound like a good use of my money, but, and I'm 6'4", so I could belong. Yeah. There's another organization called the Immortality Institute that exists uh, to conquer the blight of involuntary death. That sounds a little better. (laughs) There's an American Cheese Foundation that exists to promote the marketing and the educational opportunities of learning about producing cheese. That sounds better than the tall one. I love cheese. (laughs) So calorie dense, but so good. I'm particularly fond of very extra sharp cheddars, but I like them all. I'm not a big brie guy, but nonetheless, my wife loves that. Like she puts the apple and the bread around it and it looks so pretty and it looks like I should like it and I just don't like it. Anyway, (laughs) whatever. But what is most important and meaningful to you? What is most important and meaningful to you? What are you grateful and what are you passionate about? And for me, as I've processed this, and you just get to hear my story, and you guys are pretty polite, you probably won't walk out on me. As I've processed my life, I can say with absolute integrity that I am grateful and passionate about the local church. This one and every one I've been a part of, and every single one of them was deeply flawed. <laughs> deeply flawed. Imperfect people that were full of beauty and ugliness, existing together, trying to follow Jesus. That's the truth. But I am passionate and grateful about the church because the mission of the church is to introduce people to Jesus and follow him together. And I dream of our world being transformed by the news that God loves you no matter what and to just accept his forgiveness. And I I just dream of a day when people believe that and treat others like they mean it. And I've seen so many instances where it happens and I've seen so many where it doesn't. Because the church is imperfect. And if I'm completely honest, I've been a part of the beauty and the ugliness. I have. I have been judgmental to people. And I have been radically accepting and kind. And this beauty and darkness exists within my own soul. And I'm trying every day to ask God to help transform me more into the reality and the beauty and the image of Jesus. And I just dream of a day when we create a church community that's not as perfect, because we won't be, but that has that passion to see that happen in the life of our community. And you know where that passion starts? In the life of yourself. I dream of a church that believes not. I believe it, I, I dream of a church that doesn't look to the left and to the right and thinks to themselves, well, they need to have a little ways to go, but a church that looks into themselves individually 
and says, where do I need to grow? You know, there's that one crazy saying, you know, people quote it in church world a lot, where it says, love the sinner, hate their sin. And I really like what Tony Campolo says. He says, just love the sinner and hate your own sin. Quit worrying about other people and what they're doing right or wrong. Let them worry about that and show them radical love and acceptance. And for yourself, don't beat yourself up, but pray with earnest and fervency that God would transform your heart and make you look more like Jesus, right? Wouldn't it be beautiful to have a community that is passionate about that? And that's what the church has the potential to do, and I've seen it do it well, and I've seen it do it poorly, and just because it's done it poorly at times doesn't mean it can't do it well, and even when we get it better, we're still going to have pockets where we do it poorly. You see what I'm saying? There's a series of books that I've read, maybe like three or four of them. I'm kind of embarrassed to admit I read them because they're almost predominantly read by women, but my wife put me on to these. I'm pretty sure I just said something I shouldn't have, but nonetheless... (laughs) The books are called Mitford, and they're written by an author named Jan Karen. And, and the reason I know that mostly women read these is because my wife has always loved these books, and she got me onto them. They're about a past, well, they're about a rector who works at an Episcopalian church named Father Tim. And Jan Karen came to Dallas when we lived there on the SMU campus. And Sarah was like, well, let's go here, Jan Karen. So I went, and there were literally 500 people, and I was literally one of five guys. I think I even counted them. That is a 1% audience where I felt really awkward. But nonetheless, she was beautiful. (laughs) And the reason I love Mitford is because Father Tim works at this country church in Georgia, and he has all these crazy people in his church. Young people, old people, people that go up to each other at potlucks competing who's got the best pies and who tell the other person my pie is better than yours. You know, crazy stuff. And yet, those same people do the most beautiful things. And when you read the book, when you're not a part of those people's lives, except in your own imagination, you can't help but look at it and say, oh man, wouldn't you love to be a part of a community like that? But you know what? We are. We got all kinds of crazy in here. I'm part of it. You know what I mean? We have all kinds of crazy and beauty And if we were to extend radical, loving grace to each other, it would transform, and it's transformed my life. I grew up in a small, very conservative church. There's very little I want to emulate from that church, and yet that church shaped and made such positive impacts in my life. I learned so much from those people, from Tony Ambrose, who let me do the sausages at the men's breakfast every month, to Larry Hurley, who... Who drove my car home after my first time driving without with my license when I got in an accident, driving in my first snow, with me crying, saying to him, I can't drive anymore, Larry. Don't worry, Billy, I'll take care of it. You know what's special about that story? When I got my license, I went I wanted to go out with Larry Hurley, who was a 50-year-old man at the time, who had invested in my life. I took him, one of my other buddies, and a 50-year-old man out to get pizza. It's a beautiful sunny day when we went in, really snowy when we left. You really have to drive slow in snow, yes? We're New Yorkers, but that was the first time I'd ever done it. The church is full of beauty 
It's full of crazy because it's made up of people. But I am grateful for my church experiences, my imperfect church experiences. And I'm passionate about what the church has the ability to do in my life and your life. Think about all the things we have the potential to do. We have the potential to offer radical belonging and hope and peace and grace and acceptance. And man, I don't know about you, but those things are hard to find in a world where everybody is looking out for themselves. If we were involved with a community that really believed that God is looking out for us and so we can look onto the interest of others above ourselves because we will lose nothing in the process. I'm passionate about what the church has the potential to do. The other night, my wife talked me into finally watching this Swedish foreign film with subtitles. It was called The Man Called Ove, and I didn't want to watch it, and I had a bad attitude about it, and I said, that's my imperfection, see? And I sat there, and we were watching it, and after 30 minutes, I was mesmerized by this movie about this man named Ove who lives in Sweden, who is the most cantankerous man who hates his life and wants to kill himself. And through the movie, he has, I think, four different episodes where he tries to kill himself. First by hanging. I don't need to tell you the ways. But every time he tries to kill himself, he has these flashbacks to things in his life that have shaped him. And his life is this mixture of ugly and beauty. He had a wonderful mom and dad. His mom died early. And his dad was beautiful with him. He was one of those dads that wouldn't hardly ever talk, but he would share his life with him. And his his dad taught him morality and character. And when he was in his early 20s, he got his uh, examination report from his school that was going to be a big deal for him moving into the future in his career. And he took it to his dad, and his dad wanted to show everybody his work. He worked at a train factory. And as he held the report card up, he kept walking, see, my son, I'm so proud, my son. He gets hit by a train and dies. And the whole movie, he meets this woman, and it, and he's, you see him later in his life, and he treats everybody horrible. And finally, this one neighbor moves into his neighborhood, and he treats her horrible too, and she extends grace, steady grace. And when he tells her crazy things, he says, quit being crazy, stop doing that, and still extends her friendship and her relationship. And I just, I finished watching that movie with those suicide attempts and the depression. And I, th- I watched that thing and I was like, that's the most beautiful movie I've ever seen. Because this man was transformed by the grace and love of the people in his past. He forgot it. He was reminded of it. And he was transformed by it in the future. And I just thought, you know, I finished that movie and I thought to myself, man, I'm so glad to be a part of the church. Because we have the potential to do the exact same thing to extend grace and love and to transform people's lives because there are few places in this world where you will receive that kind of acceptance and grace. We will do it imperfectly, but we will do it nonetheless or die trying. That is the goal because it's just like when you buy a cantaloupe at the grocery store or a peach. Have you ever had a peach that's not ripe? It stinks but it doesn't turn you off from peaches forever because when you get a good one, it's incredible. You see? We are all tempted towards crazy, 
We're tempted towards it with our money. <laughs> We're just tempted towards it. Because our imaginations have more in them than our resources can fuel. So we're tempted to overspend, we're tempted towards debt, we're tempted towards no margin, and we experience stress. But the off-ramp is giving, and it will change your entire life. And God's way of money can be summarized this way. It's far different than the crazy cycle. We give, we save, we live, and we have peace. You know what this means? It means you give and you save. You don't spend all your resources. You save. You live and you experience peace. And you know, you can get off the crazy cycle and onto a pathway of peace even if you give to Tall Clubs International. What are you grateful for? What are you passionate about? But I want us to ask in the most direct and hopefully appropriate way possible, if you are grateful and passionate about the life and the ministry of LifeSpring Community Church, then I want to ask you to create a regular proportionate plan to support LifeSpring. Church, like many, like every nonprofit organization, is funded by the willing gifts of those who are grateful for what we do and are passionate about what we do. We are funded by individuals who have come up with a regular proportionate plan, and the only way we can continue to fulfill our mission is if we have financial and volunteer partners who will come alongside us and help us as we extend love and grace to others. This is a particularly exciting time in the life of our church, If you notice when you came in, you probably were handed one of these. Hopefully we didn't force it on you, but you were offered one. These are cards because in the life of our church right now, we are so close. And when I say so close, we are like months away from being able to start a search for a third level pastoral position to oversee our youth ministry and uh, a couple other things. Help me preach so you won't have to listen to me every single week. Yeah. And we are so close to it. But the role is not just to help us get a third staff position. The role that we're trying to fill is to help all of us hire a person that will help us develop leaders to further our culture and our vision and mission so that we can extend more love and grace to the people of our church and to our kids. Our whole passion and vision behind this position of a youth pastor is not just to have a cool, good-looking guy who can play music and who will look cool for the youth students. We already have a cool, good-looking guy. It's not me. (laughs) I am an adequately sufficient-looking guy. Now, (laughs) if you are passionate and if you are grateful for the life of our church, I am asking you to increase and help us reach our goal to hire this position. We are so close Uh, We are actually exceeding our budget by almost $800, and we are $233 average per week from getting to our goal. And these cards, you notice they do not have a slot for you to commit to a certain amount. We're never going to know. These are simply private. And I'm asking for you who have no plan to give but are grateful and passionate to create one, and I'm asking for those of you who already have a plan to increase it slightly if you're able.
a regular proportionate plan to help us not fulfill Chris and Bill's mission and vision and dreams, but to help us extend the mission of Jesus to extend more love and grace to the people we're trying to reach. And in doing so, you get off the crazy cycle. That's an added bonus. Let me pray for you. Father, we th- we're so thankful for your love, and we ask that you would help us to see the beauty and the reality of Jesus more every single day and help us extend that love to others. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.